0: This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW, 90.9 FM in Calgary.
1: We are reaping the harvest we sowed in Latin America. It's difficult to see how you would reverse the situation or ameliorate the situation or in some way change U.S. Relations all across Latin America to where people in Latin America looked at us more as a beneficial partner, giant that we are, but a beneficial partner, than an antagonist and even an enemy. That's where we are now.
0: That's Lawrence Wilkerson, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Lawrence Wilkerson on U.S. Empire and Latin America. The list of U.S. invasions, occupations, coups, and sanctions in Latin America is a mile long. It is, after all, our little region over here and our backyard, according to policymakers in Washington. Starting with the Monroe Doctrine in 1823... The continent and its people have been a laboratory for U.S. intervention, a kind of piñata, a punching bag. As the U.S. became a world power, techniques perfected in Latin America were then globalized. Today, once again, Washington turns its hegemonic gaze south. The National Security Advisor, John Bolton, denounces the Troika of Tyranny, Cuba Venezuela, and Nicaragua, and the leaders of those countries as the three stooges of socialism. Apparently, with no sense of shame or of history, Bolton declared, we're not afraid to use the phrase Monroe Doctrine in this administration. Our guest today is Lawrence Wilkerson. He teaches government and public policy at William and Mary College. He was Secretary of State Colin Powell's chief of staff and associate director of the State Department's policy planning staff. Before working at the State Department, he served 31 years in the U.S. Army, retiring with the rank of Colonel. He spoke at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill on April 17, 2019. And now, Lawrence Wilkerson,
1: It's very difficult to talk about U.S. policy with regard to any region in the world without talking about history to a certain extent. I could go back and tell you about Marine Generals, for example, Smedley Butler, who with regard to his performance in this hemisphere said that he was a criminal for capitalism in testimony before the Congress of the United States that he was like Al Capone, only he had operated on two continents where Al Capone had maybe operated in a state or two, that he was a criminal for capitalism. Most people who associate regularly with the political process in Washington, be they, be they Democrat or Republican or Independent, would probably say that was going a little bit too far. As a military professional for 31 years, I can tell you that it is probably a fair assessment. What I tell my students is that you have to consider what the United States does largely for commercial purposes as beneficial to the American citizen at the expense, perhaps, and most often at the expense of others in the world. It's a bargain with the devil, if you will, if you're the number one power in the world, the number one economy in the world, and so forth. That's another story, though, because what I want to talk about is where that particular rationale for action in the world, if you will, has been so consistent and so prominent that it has now become an ingredient of a foreign policy that generates more hatred, more danger, and more disadvantage for U.S. interests, whether they're foreign policy, national security, commercial, or whatever, than good. What I teach I call national security decision-making. And for 15 years, some of the brightest students I've ever come across have taught me as much as I've taught them. But they have done case study after case study, and we focus on what we call fateful decision making in order to get at the very essence of what national security decision making in your country is. Fateful decisions we define in two ways. One, in what we used to call war, but now use euphemisms to describe like conflict or hostilities or whatever, we send young men and young women to die or be wounded for, or if they survive, come back from with post-traumatic stress and all manner of other problems, to die for the state, fight for the state, to do whatever it is that the military is supposed to do in overt action after a national security decision is made. That's one plane of analysis. Another is what we call covert operations. We look at those two, even though in 1947, which is our foundation document, 1947 National Security Act, there is no stipulation in that act for covert operations, none whatsoever. There's a tiny little paragraph that Allen Dulles and while Bill Donovan, his predecessor, and others at the CIA interpreted to mean that they could continue what they'd done during the war, World War II, in peacetime. That is to say, they could go out and do things secretly with your tax money to other countries, to other leaders, and so forth, so long as the president had at least not objected, and in some cases would, would give tacit approval all in secrecy so that you would never know it happened unless you just happened to stumble on something as we did for example with Ronald Reagan during the so-called Iran Contra scandal. You have to wait 20 or 25 years before you can read about these things and who cares 20 25 years after the moratorium is up and you can look at the documents. My students go to two places principally, that lots of sources they go to for these covert operations, they go to people like John Prados and Safe for Democracy, which is probably as tedious a book as you would ever want to read, full of primary sources and full of commentary about, including Latin America, covert operations across the face of the globe for the past half century or so, since World War II and the creation of this capacity. They also go to another source which is just brimming with scholarly documents, that is to say archives that actually document these decisions, the advice given to these decision makers and the scenario and the operational context of what actually flows from those decisions and that's the National Security Archive at George Washington University, a fabulous repository of official documents and associated paraphernalia. Uh, People like Peter Kornblue and others have put this together over time, and if you want to really find out what's going on or was going on, not classified anymore, go to those archives. But what we find from that is everything from Eisenhower, and we study Eisenhower's two initial coup, because Eisenhower is a man who is versed in war like no other president we've had except possibly Ulysses S. Grant. And there's some real similarities between their actions. Eisenhower is appalled by open conflict. He is absolutely committed to not making a fateful decision that will start a war, that other range of decisions we study. And so he gives real institutional blessing and coherence to the covert operation aspect. And he starts, of course, as we all know, I hope, in 1953 with Mohammed Mossadegh in Iran, with the British conspiring right along with him and he overthrows the democratically elected leader of Iran. And for 26 years or so, we get the Shah, we get reasonable stability and access to Iranian oil. Again, ask yourself, would you have rather not had access to that oil? Even more importantly, ask yourself if you'd rather or not had your ally, the United Kingdom, then still roiling under what had happened to them in World War II, for that matter, World War I, too. France, same way. Germany wrecked. Russia having stolen most of Germany's heavy uh, industry but still wrecked herself, too. Japan wrecked. Would you have not had that oil flow to your allies as you tried to resurrect yourself after World War II? Especially if you were the New Rome. You were the hegemon. You are so powerful that you have 50% of the world's gross domestic product. You're so powerful that in the last year of that war you make 50,000 airplanes. You are so powerful that you can't turn that power off. And so now you're doing things like clandestine operations and making war fiercely, except for Eisenhower. Eisenhower does not have an open war in his administration. He comes close in Lebanon, but he doesn't have an open war. But he does give real credibility to covert operations. As I said, first in 53 with Mossadegh, and then in 54, and now we're in Latin America, Central America. I call it all Latin America. He starts there with Guatemala in 1954, tries to get the man who ran the successful operation in Iran, Kermit Roosevelt, to take the one in Guatemala. After all, he's got a success record now. And Kermit essentially says, if we can judge from those who apparently overheard him, well, no, I don't want to do that again. If you want to do something like that, send in the Marines. He didn't want to have anything to do with another covert operation. But that's no problem. You can always find someone at the CIA who will. And so they do. And if you go back and you study that operation, as we have, in minute detail, as we have, look at the archives, as we have, you will see that we contrived the communist aspect of Jacoba Arbins in order to allow us to overthrow him. We even bought Czech arms and put them on a steamer and sailed them into the bay in order to say, see, they're communist. Now, there were probably some communist elements around, but this begins the use of communism and the specter of its ideology and the specter of the giant Soviet Union with nuclear weapons and so forth and so on as being majorly, even existentially inimical to U.S. interest. And we overthrow Jacobo Arbenz. And I would assert to you today, and my students would tell you the same thing, that Guatemala is still suffering from that initial coup. That's going to be a trend as we go through this history. Fast forward a little bit to the next one that we look at really hard, and it's because there is so much data available now. So many archival documents, so many tape recordings, and so forth. Uh, you, You have to ask yourself sometimes why Nixon let that tape recorder run during some of the conversations that we now have a record of and this is Chile, it starts in the Johnson administration and it is mostly buying newspaper editors and union heads and so forth. Where have you heard that before? What, what just happened in 2016 that the Democrats and some Republicans are making so much over that Russia interfered in our elections, that Russia was instrumental in the defeat of Hillary Clinton, and instrumental in the success of Donald Trump and so forth. Well, your country has been doing that for decades and doing it with a great deal more bloodshed and money spent and anger created and angst generated and turmoil and lasting effects than probably anyone else in the world. Certainly the Soviet Union as the Soviet Union was involved from time to time in these sort of enterprises, but not to the extent your country has been, not to the finesse and the damage and the destruction and the lingering problems that your country has been. What, back to Chile for a moment. You actually have a President of the United States turn to his CIA director when he's really feeling angry and say, quote, make the Chilean economy scream, unquote, and we do. We go after Allende, Salvador Allende, then the president of Chile, and all that he represented, to include his Cuban entourage. We, don't forget that now. That's a major element of U.S. policy. Anywhere the Cubans are, they are so terribly destructive, so powerful, that we always have to go after them. No matter what happens, we have to go after the Cubans. So Allende has a little detachment, very smart man leading that detachment in Santiago, and so that's another aspect. But when you really parse the pieces and you look at what's going on, you find more of mine interests, soft drink interests, telecommunications interest, and you even find people from those industries coming into the Oval Office to talk to the President of the United States. You even find people having significant influence on the President of the United States with regard to those commercial interests. You even have a situation where one day you have Henry Kissinger, then the National Security Advisor, very powerful man, probably as powerful a man as we've ever had in the Oval Office who was unelected, and not subject to the advice and consent of the Senate. Very powerful man saying, it doesn't matter, referring to Latin America. It doesn't matter at all. It's not even consequential. Within months, essentially going along with Nixon in that it is utterly existential to the United States of America that Salvador Allende be removed from office and every trapping of communism and socialism be expunged even to the point where we will install that distinguished gentleman of all scholars, Pinochet, as the leader of Chile, and Milton Friedman, that stunning economist from the University of Chicago, will go down there and teach him how to do things. And Henry Kissinger will go down there and have lunch with him. And we all know, I hope, what Pinochet meant for Chile for the next decade or two. Horrible situation for Chileans. We still don't know to this day, though we've made a pretty good count of it in the archives at uh, George Washington University, how many people Pinochet actually disappeared or just outright killed. One of the most intriguing videos I show my students is of some of the top five percent in Chile's wives who are assembled to comment on various things that Pinochet does as he's consolidating his revolution. And they're in their minks and they're in their ermine and they talk about how Pinochet made a mistake in the stadium where he had gathered thousands of these supposed revolutionaries, communists, socialists. He made a mistake, he should have machine gunned them all right there in the stadium. These are the wives of those who will become the cognoscenti, the intelligentsia, the leaders of Chile. They are the people we install, the people we are supporting, the people with whom our leaders will have lunch and conversations and discussions about the future, the people whom our economists will show how to generate predatory capitalism that above all will benefit the five percent in Chile, but secondarily their cohorts in the United States of America across a spectrum of industry and corporate interest. Again, back to the point, many of my students have, a, have trouble with this, but if you want a job and you want a decent economy according to the rules presently operating in the world, that's the way the game's played. You use your power to make it happen. It's been particularly egregious in our own hemisphere for a number of reasons, and my students wrestle with this, but over time, they begin to understand, I think, what the real motivation for the Monroe Doctrine was, what the real motivation for continuing to resurrect it from time to time is now, and they use, cleverly, I think, sometimes the Dash 9 line, with regard to China in the South China Sea. And they usually come to the conclusion, especially those who are studying China outside in other classes, that China has more right, historically and in terms of its own security, to declare that line its boundary in the South China Sea than we do to declare the Monroe Doctrine operative in the Western Hemisphere, particularly given how we've implemented that doctrine over years. That's neither here nor there. It's just to show you that there are other sides to the argument, other sides to the question. If you go through this history, as my students have, and you arrive at the point where all of a sudden you are looking at today, or let's say 2000 on, and then you come into the realm where I can add to the seminar the experiential element. That is to say, I was there. I was there, for example, in 2002 when we decided we didn't like Hugo Chavez and we tried to overthrow him, using again the CIA but in a very different way. Kermit Roosevelt used very limited resources and mostly the ability to generate through those limited resources allies in a country. didn't matter who the allies were. Usually they were the scum of the earth or worse. It was just the people that you needed and that you could get to work for you for money to overthrow the government or to do whatever it was you wanted to do in that country. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. Today, we don't do it that way. We've become far more sophisticated, as you might suspect. Over time, we learned. We learned from the Pike Committee, we learned from the other groups that oversaw the 70s when we were looking at the CIA and some of the things they had done like trying to assassinate Fidel Castro in Cuba. And we created as a result of those committees, we created the oversight committees in the Congress, the permanent select committee in the House and the select committee in the, in the Senate as overseeing mechanisms for these covert operations but for intelligence operations in general. Well, what my students find that over time, from the Church and the Pike committees in the 70s, and their revelations about what was happening in your name and with your tax dollars, they've discovered that the committees they put together to be oversight committees have become cheerleaders instead for the Intelligence Committee. And then we look at that from the perspective of how did this happen, and that's another case study, but it's an interesting case study, is to how do you you go from being angry at what you've created in 1947 and what it's become in the 70s to being cheerleaders for what you've created? Well, it's, it's an interesting study. You do it because you become so close to the very apparatus you're overseeing and you become close because you are the only ones who can hear what it is they're doing in that special power within the legislature that sooner or later, you are looking at them from the perspective of protecting them rather than overseeing them. And that's what's happened to the two committees in the Congress. And it doesn't matter whether Diane Feinstein is in the chair of the Senate Select Committee or Richard Burr. Diane might have given a lot more rhetoric to the other softer side of her job than Richard Burr. I mean, he's just an outright criminal in my mind. He's the man who will not allow, for example, the legitimately arrived at, extremely well done report on torture with almost 6,000 pages out for you to read. He doesn't want you to read that because he knows that a significant number of you would probably object, would probably not like the idea that war crimes were committed in your name and with your money. We'll probably never see that report. And we'll never see it, largely because of his machinations to keep us from seeing it. This is what the oversight committees have become, cheerleaders for the Intelligence community. Back to my own experience. Here we are in 2002. We can't get Otto Wright confirmed as the Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs, but we can get Roger Noriega confirmed. We can bring Elliot Abrams in, and we can listen to the President who essentially says i got to pay those Cuban-Americans in Florida back who voted for me. And to this day, I can find no evidence that that was not the primary motivation for the President of the United States. Think about this for a moment. This was one of the most inexperienced presidents to ever walk into the Oval Office post World War II. He demonstrated it almost every day during those first four years. HE MADE CATASTROPHIC DECISION AFTER CATASTROPHIC DECISION IN THAT FIRST FOUR YEARS. DROVE SECRETARY POWELL INSANE. HE WOULD COME BACK TO MY OFFICE, HE WOULD OPEN THE DOOR, AND HE WOULD SAY, YOU KNOW WHAT I DO FOR THIS ADMINISTRATION? I CLEAN THE DOG OFF THE OVAL OFFICE CARPET. THAT'S WHAT I DO. I DON'T DO ANYTHING MORE because I can't, I can't get out of the shackles I'm in, shackles put on me by the Vice President, by the Secretary of Defense, by the National Security Advisor, Condoleezza Rice, and a host of other people who had other interests than America's in mind, in my view. They had their own personal power interest in mind, and they had what I call now neoconservative interest in mind, which are to maintain the hegemony of the United States no matter what, through thick and thin. And that boils down to if you raise your head in the world and you even look like you're going to threaten U.S. interests commercially, security-wise, whatever, I'm going to bash you, and I'm going to bash you hard. That's what we're going to do. And Powell is in the middle of this and trying to say to the president, We've got some really important issues out there that we can only settle, we can only work on, we can only make less than inimical to America's interest, and even positive perhaps, if we have really solid and exquisite diplomacy with some of the other powers in the world, including those who might be our potential enemies, but certainly our friends, like Germany and Japan and Korea and Australia and New Zealand and a host of others. And all this tension is happening and beneath this tension now, think of the current administration for a moment. Beneath this tension and this inexperienced president, president run all these little people. Elliot Abrams and Roger Noriega and so forth and all they have as a, a direction from the president is pay those Cubans back in Florida. So the first thing they're doing of course is trying to make the situation in in Cuba. Worse. Worse for the Cubans. But they also see this gentleman in Caracas as being a real threat should his efforts to bring the 95 percent or so of Venezuelans who've never had any political power in the history of the state into some reasonable degree of that power. Gotta stop them. Gotta stop them. So we began to do what I was suggesting we began to do covert operations in Caracas in 2001 and two, But these are very sophisticated. We don't just put Kermit on the ground and buy newspaper editors. We just, you know, we don't do these kinds of things anymore because they're too easy to get caught out at. They're too easy to run off the rails. So what we do is we hire people wittingly and unwittingly to do these sorts of things for us. People like the National Endowment for Democracy, other NGOs and pseudo-government organizations. Even I had a vice president of World Vision come in from sub-Saharan Africa when I was chief of staff at the State Department and just sit down in front of me and just go on and on and on about what was happening within his own ranks that he couldn't do anything about. So the CIA infiltrates these organizations. It uses these organizations, as I said, sometimes wittingly, sometimes unwittingly. And under the guise of teaching free market principles, teaching constitutionality, teaching uh, proper journalistic techniques and principles and so forth, we undermine the existing government. And once it gets to the point where maybe you've got a revolution on your hands or maybe you're going to have blood in the streets and so forth, you back off hope that the people you've created in there to be the pinpoints of power do, in fact, achieve success. Only in 2002, it didn't work. (laughs) Hugo Chavez beat the snocker out of the CIA and maintained his power.
0: You're listening to Lawrence Wilkerson on U.S. Empire and Latin America. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can order copies of this program by calling one 800 That's one 800 Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
1: And now today what we have, of course, is the same thing to a certain extent we got in Brazil. We didn't like Lula at all in Brazil because Lula did the same things largely that Hugo Chavez did, but Lula was a lot smarter. Lula co-opted all manner of power around him, both external and internal, and effected very slowly and carefully reforms that did the same thing in Brazil that Chavez was doing in Venezuela problem with Lula was when he left, Dilma Rousseff came in and didn't have nearly the skills that he had, didn't have nearly the support that he had, and wound up wound up succumbing to the other side of the coin, if you will, those people in Brazil who would prefer to see everything, thank you very much, go on the same way it had gone on, gone on for years. And now, of course, we have the result, an even worse person in Brazil. In Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro came in and frankly from my perspective and from those whose views I respect, messed everything up. And so now you have a real crucial situation in Venezuela that sees on the one side people like Leopoldo Lopez and his stooge Juan Guaido and others, and on the other side Maduro and his people in the middle of the military, the most powerful force in the country. And you have incompetence on both sides, but on the one side you have the United States and all the acolytes in the world who have bowed to the United States and said, yes, okay, Guaido ought to be the ruler. And on the other side you have the people who are still trying to hold on to what Chavez created and doing a very poor job of it because basically they don't know what they're doing and when you have that situation you become as corrupt as the people you're trying to fight. So you have a really bad situation in Venezuela right now, which we have exacerbated. This is what we do under the name and guise of covert operations. We do it all across the world. Why do we have to operate in the world that way? Why is this a necessity for the United States to do these sorts of things for Canadian mining companies, for Pepsi Cola, telecommunications, and we haven't even talked about the telecommunications influence and other influence on the coup in Honduras. And the fact that we have Sotocano, a military base in Honduras, a base I've been on. I talk about this across the country and Americans look at me like, we have a base in Honduras? Yes, ma'am, we do. We disguise it very carefully We say it's a Honduran base, and we put a guard or two on it who are Honduran military, but it's a military base for the United States of America, and we don't want to lose that. So if they get a governor, if they get a president, if they get a Congress, if they get a ruler, if they get a legislative body that wants to throw the United States out, we have to eliminate that body. We can't allow that to happen. We need Soto Do we? Do we? As a military professional, I can tell you we need Soto Kano like we need another hole in the head. But this is what we do. Why do we need Okinawa? Against the interest of almost every Okinawan citizen, why do we need Okinawa? We don't. We did a study in 1991-92 in the Marine Corps. We showed we didn't need, for strategic purposes, Okinawa. Can you imagine those few Marines on Okinawa invading China? or doing anything to defend the Japanese islands against China. Nonsense. But they're there and we don't want to take them home. Why do we not want to take them home? Well, we don't want to take them home because in California, which is the most likely place they would return to, they cost more than they do on Okinawa. That's partly because the Japanese fund about 50% of their cost on Okinawa. So we don't want to bring them home. These are the kinds of decisions that ought to be Decisions you see, there ought to be transparency if we have any pretense anymore to being a democracy, to being a republic that has democratic tendencies at least. These are decisions that ought to be weighed with the American people, especially this money we're spending right now. Back to Venezuela for a moment, because this is a critical, critical time for not just Venezuela, but for the United States too, El Coloso del Norte. There is a potential for a real bloodbath in Venezuela. Should the United States, and this is what my students most recently wrestled with in seminar, should the United States, based on that alone, put military forces in Venezuela to stabilize the situation. What would be the aftermath was the main point the students wanted to make. There was almost consensus on what the aftermath would be. It would be something like Libya, it would be something like Iraq, it would be something like all the rest of the places your country has invaded or fought wars in or is still fighting wars in right now. It would be a mess, an absolute mess and the United States would not be a stabilizing factor. Instead, it would be a destabilizing factor. So what do you do? I thought the students had some pretty good ideas. You enlist the good offices of others. Mexico, Colombia, the Pope, whomever you can get to exercise their good offices and you get people to talk, to negotiate, and to somehow come to some, some solution, which would probably be, because there isn't any other way to do it, instrumentally anyway, some sort of election, new elections, and some sort of plebiscite, some sort of oversight of the, of the voting and so forth from neutrals, whether it's the United Nations, the EU, whoever might be involved. I wouldn't have the United States down there because we can't even run our own elections well anymore. I want to see a lot of observers come to the United States for our elections. I know how we Republicans won Ohio, for example. We cheated like hell. We got into the computer systems. It's a real easy thing to do. Why would anyone think that we used to stuff ballot boxes and we used to take names off gravestones and vote them, that in an age of computers we wouldn't do the same thing only with a lot more sophistication? You go out and you find a place where the margin's about 1% to 2% in the polls, and then you get someone to twiggle the computers for just forty or 50,000 votes because we don't go out and vote in great numbers in local elections. Normally no more than 25 or 30% of the registered voters vote. In some, in Texas, for example, less than 15%. We did a study at William & Mary of Texas. Less than 15%. That doesn't mean you have to get a lot of votes. <laughs> so, if you can get, you know, a thousand here, a thousand there from tweaking the computer, you're going to win. This is what's happening. This is what has always happened in one way or another. But it's got a great deal more impact today, particularly when the empire is looking as bad as it's looking today. And what do I mean by that? $22 trillion in debt. The interest payments on that debt, which ignore the total debt, which is approaching 100% of GDP, hadn't been there since World War II, you can ignore that debt if you want to. I would not. I would not ignore it. I'd think about some way to fix it. But you can ignore it a lot longer than you can ignore the annual interest payments on that debt, which now approach the size of the defense budget. And the Congressional Budget Office has just put a study out essentially saying that by 2030, 31, 32, somewhere in there, not very far away, the interest payments on that debt and the defense budget together at just nominal increases annually, about 2%, will negate all other discretionary federal spending. That is to say there will be no other money. We'll be spending it all on interest payments on the debt and on the military. And things like what I've described to you in terms of fateful decision-making are the biggest cost factor in this situation. If you look at the money that we have spent since 9-11, you are looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of $5 trillion. This is the Defense Department's own estimates as to what the wars have cost since 9-11. If you factor in, as the cost of war project at Brown University has done, the wave of veterans coming down the road at us that we will have to take care of through the VA, add another two trillion. Now that's money that could have been used to refurbish our infrastructure, water, roads, sewage, bridges, you name it, and probably refurbish it in a sustainable, renewable way Money that could be used to send every youngster in America for a decade or so to college free. Money that could be used to finance a health care system that gives us all a break. This is money that could be used for a lot of domestic purposes that are probably more important than fighting a war in Syria or supporting the Saudis in a war in Yemen or going to Venezuela with our military and probably making more harm than good. A restrained foreign policy, a restrained security policy would do this country a lot of good. And yet it seems to be an impossible thing. We have been at war by some counts for 18 straight years and if you count the north fly zone and the south fly zones in Iraq, no fly zones in Iraq, we've actually been at war since 1990 without fail. Most of you Although you don't know it because we don't have a draft, most of you in the back there have never known a country not at war. You've grown up in a country whose raison d'etre is making war, whose raison d'etre is overthrowing other people's governments, whose raison d'etre is national security, and that's why we study it. It is the essence of the empire these days. In Latin America, it is showing so vividly today, so dramatically today that we have people at our southern border that the president feels like he has to dispatch the military to prevent coming into this country. And yet, much of the reason they're coming, we created over the last century. This is not anything unusual in history. What did the Romans do? (laughs) Whether it's the profligacy, the debt, the diplomacy or lack thereof, the use of the war power or whatever, we look a lot like Rome. We look a lot like Athens and the Peloponnesian League. When I was at the Naval War College, I found out that the tribute list from some of Athens' demands upon the members of the League like Corinth and Sparta and others were actually at the Rockefeller Library at Brown University. So I went up to look at them because I was writing a paper at the time on the Peloponnesian League using essentially Thucydides' uh, writings. And I was stunned to see how bold Athens was, how arrogant they were in terms of collecting this tribute. And yet today what are we doing? What are we doing with our trade wars? What are we doing by our pronouncements that our allies aren't holding their own weight and so forth and so on, demanding pay from them? We're doing the same thing that Athens did only with a little bit of modern patina. We are an empire and anybody who thinks we are an empire is smoking some low grade stuff. But there's ways to maintain empire that are better than other ways to maintain, maintain empire. And the last few years, and my exposure to the highest levels of power in this country taught me that the last few years in particular have been extremely dangerous for this empire. There are polls, for example, that show that better than half the world's population that's about three and a half billion people believe the number one threat to their future is not the state next to them like Pakistan and India, is not the terrorists in their midst, it's not the nuclear weapons that might be in their vicinity, it's the United States of America. That's what these polls are showing us. Now they're even showing us that amongst some of our allies and would-be allies like Pakistan and Egypt and so forth. They're showing us that our policies are now dramatically revealed to the world, either intuitively or intellectually or in many cases both, and that those policies are redounding to our discredit to a degree that they're actually influencing our national security, and they're not influencing national security positively. So we need to do something about it. I'll finish by saying that there are a lot of us in Washington, some of us Republicans, I'm a Republican, there are only about four of us left in the Republican Party that are Republicans, Lincoln Republicans, Rockefeller Republicans, Eisenhower Republicans. We are trying to do something about this. We, a group, certainly not me exclusively, but the group I belong to, really helped get the legislation through the Senate and the House demanding that the President get the United States out of that brutal war in Yemen. The President has vetoed it. I think that was a tragic mistake on two levels. One, it was the wrong thing to do. And two, the President missed a marvelous opportunity to make a point before the 2020 elections that he is the President and not John Bolton and not Mike Pompeo or anybody else in his administration. What a marvelous stroke of genius it would have been for him to support that legislation, either by not vetoing it and just letting it go back and be impactful and in effect, or by actually saying, I'm for it and having it happen. I mean, this is the guy who said he didn't do stupid wars. This is the guy who said, Empires don't fight in stupid wars. Powerful countries don't fight in stupid wars. So it's a wonder to me why he didn't take this advantage and and, and do something like that. I have to imagine that like Nixon and Kissinger, Bolton and Trump have found some kind of chemistry that puts them together, and maybe Pompeo too, although there's a lot of infighting in Washington right now that you don't see probably that I do because I'm closer to it I can't even tell you what the decision on Venezuela is going to be. One of the things my students will tell you, one of the things I can corroborate for them is this man does not use the 1947 statutory institutions in order to make decisions. He's hardly been to a National Security Council meeting. He makes decisions in his bedroom with Covino and his boys tweeting for him. That's the best we can tell. One of the things we analyze in our decision-making analysis is the process. That is to say, where is the decision made, who's the influence on it, and why did their influence produce the decision? Why did the president follow this or that piece of advice and not that over there? That's one of the things we do. We can't do that for this administration because there is no process that we can detect. And we've bored into it several times trying to figure out how the decision-making process actually works in this administration. It's very difficult. Johnson had his Tuesday luncheons. H. W. Bush had his lunch with the vice president. George W. Bush had his NSC meetings. Other presidents have tweaked the statutory process. They've made decisions here, made decisions there. You know, Nixon is probably on his yacht in the Potomac with Bibi Reboso when he decides to expand the Vietnam War and invade Cambodia. So we've seen it all in our study, in our case study, re- uh, our research. We've seen every kind of president, every kind of decision-making process, except this one. <laughs> we've never seen this one. We do not know how this administration makes decisions. We can see the mercurial nature, we can see the chemistry and sociology of the decision-making team, we can see the other influences, the international influences, the domestic political context, all those things we can parse and analyze and come up with answers to, reasonably accurate probably. But in terms of the ultimate decision-maker in the process, mystery, total mystery. So what will we do with respect to Venezuela? And what will we do with respect to Libya, which is falling apart majorly again now, largely because Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia is backing the general who's marching on Tripoli with billions of dollars of aid and arms? Now, where do you think he got those arms? I'll give you two guesses. <laughs> First one doesn't count. Nothing is looking very solid right now in terms of recent U.S. handprint, fingerprints, whatever you want to say. So what would the situation in Venezuela look like if the United States refrained but offered its good offices, such as they are, mostly to recommend others? What would it look like if we intervened, and what would it look like if we just said, not our business, we're out of there, we're not doing anything? We looked at all three of those, and frankly, all three have their problems. All three have their disadvantages, if you will, few advantages in any of them, except the one my students gradually came to say would have been their choice or would be their choice. Leave it alone. Let the Venezuelan people settle their own problems. Let Colombians and others help, but let them settle their own problems. Throw into that another ingredient. One of the smartest men in the world right now in terms of foreign and security policy is a guy who runs a gas station for the world, a guy whom we have poked our fingers in the eyes of since Bill Clinton decided to reverse George H.W. Bush's policy and expand NATO right into his face, all the way to Georgia, Warsaw, you name it, Putin. A despicable man who has weaponized his mafia in order to go after these things in the world that he wants, but a genius when it comes to strategy. He goes after us where we show weakness, he punches above his weight, and if we respond, he stops, maybe even backs up a little bit. So, what has he done? He's gone to Syria, he's gone to Venezuela. He's, I'm told, going back to Cuba now, if the Cubans will have him. I know the Cubans didn't have too good a relations with the Russians. This is a man who's making it difficult for us in our own hemisphere and elsewhere, and he's doing it largely out of state interest, but out of the interests that were generated primarily by what we did to him post-Cold War, reversing everything H.W. Bush stood for, and going for what? Selling F 16s to Poland, selling armaments to Georgia, selling armaments to other members of the Warsaw Pact who are now members of a free Europe. This was the major motivation for NATO's expansion. Any fool could see what Putin was going to do in response once we crawl right up to his door. He did exactly what one would expect him to do. We are reaping the harvest we sowed in Latin America. I didn't even begin to go to the depth and profundity of how we grew the seeds and watered them and so forth and so on, but we are reaping a harvest of our own policies. It's difficult to see how you would reverse the situation or ameliorate the situation or in some way change U.S. relations all across Latin America to where people in Latin America looked at us more as a beneficial partner, giant that we are, but a beneficial partner than an antagonist and even an enemy. That's where we are now. Once, I think it was 2009 when I was in Havana, a very prominent Cuban said to me, even a dying elephant can thrash a lot of grass." And he was referring to his picture of the United States as an expiring empire, but wondering if that expiring empire wouldn't crush him before it died. I don't think the situation's that grim, but I think it could be. I haven't even talked about the climate crisis, but it could be. And we don't seem to have the kind of leadership the kind of character and integrity in that leadership, the kind of potential for extended leadership that's necessary to reverse some of these things and to meet some of these challenges, which is why I tell my students we are leaving you not only with a house mortgage or two on your back through our irresponsibility with the budget and with fiscal matters in general, And we are leaving you with an existential threat to your existence that the world hasn't seen for thousands of years. And if you survive, it'll be through your ingenuity, creativity, engineering, imagination, you name it, use of high technology. That is one hell of a thing to tell your grandchildren. And I have four of them. I really feel like apologizing to them. Thank you.
0: You were just listening to Lawrence Wilkerson on US Empire and Latin America. He spoke at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill on April 17th, 2019. Lawrence Wilkerson teaches government and public policy at William and Mary College. He was Secretary of State Colin Powell's Chief of Staff. Before working at the State Department, he served 31 years in the U.S. Army, retiring with the rank of Colonel. This program is produced by Alternative Radio, based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and part of the nonprofit media organization Rise Up. We feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Bill McKibben, Winona LaDuke, Michael Yates, Shoshana Zuboff, and Ilan Pape. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, mp3s or written transcripts of today's program lawrence wilkerson on u.s empire and latin america just call us at one 800 again that number is one 800 jerry marketos recorded the program joe richie is our general manager and editor I'm David Samyang. Thank you for listening. Oh,
2: oh girls, go. girls. Girls. Oh,
0: girls. Girls.
2: When you go okay. to I'm be Oh, girls, just want to <laughs> have fun. <laughs> Oh, girls just wanna have fun 90.9 FM in Calgary. We're just here to have fun.